All right, if you would like to take your Bibles, uh, there are two places you could turn. We're going to do what we did last week, and we're going to begin with Colossians chapter 2. And so if you would like to have Colossians chapter 2 as a reference point, you can turn there. Our primary place this morning will be 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And we won't get to 2 Corinthians chapter 9 until about two-thirds of the way through the sermon, but that's our our core text. What we're doing is we're continuing a series of sermons built around Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. Now, this is not a sermon of those passages. We did that sermon two weeks ago. But what we're trying to ask is, based on those verses, how does that impact our life? So last week, we talked about the use of the body, the issue of tattoos, that type of thing, food, what we eat, how we handle our body. This week, we're dealing with money and resources. Next week, we're dealing with time. So the first verses you see pop up on the screen in a few minutes are going to be from Colossians 2, and then our main text is going to be 2 Corinthians chapter 9. If you like to follow along, there are some notes on the back of your bulletin that you got as, as you came in, and so you'll be able to, uh, you'll be able to reference those, and, and hopefully they'll be a, a resource for you. Also, based on, the, uh, based on the sermon this week, I'm going to send out an email with some follow-up resources and so if you, are, if you don't normally receive the emails that I send out every other week or so, if you fill out one of those cards and put your email address on there and just say, hey, send me that email, we'll, we'll get, that, get that to you. But there's a lot of things around this sermon that could cause confusion, maybe give you ideas for further study, and I want to be able to send out an email with some things in it. And so just to let you know, that's coming. Now before we get into the sermon this morning, If you spent any amount of time on social media or watched the news in the last couple of days, you know that the situation in Charlottesville is just right at the core of what's happening in our nation. The, just the barbaric nature of racism and white supremacy and nationalism that's taking place there. And there's sometimes you'll see things on social media uh, and I think pastors are well-meaning when they say this, but people will say something, if your preacher doesn't preach about this tomorrow, they don't care. There's a, there's a nature of the world we live in where if every week we're just responding to the new thing that people are enraged about, then the preacher's task is always chasing around what culture is worried about and what people are enraged about. And there's a sense in which we do always want to be prepared to respond to those things. I'm not living with my head in the sand. I know the pain. I I sense this urgency. Uh, And you say, well, how could you preach on money at a time when our nation is like this? Well, there's more to it than money this morning, a lot more to it than money. And I also want to be careful that us as a church, we're not just chasing around every new thing that comes into social media, that, that there's something else that's involved in shaping us as a church, and when we come around God's word and these sort of things. And so, are there times that the preacher throws a curveball on Saturday afternoon and changes the sermon? Absolutely. I hope I'm always open to God's leadership in my life and that I'm willing to do that. But, man, if I came up with a new sermon every Saturday afternoon because of what showed up on social media— We'd all go crazy <laughs> in, in that process. And so I want us to begin, after we read these verses from Colossians, we're going to pray and pray about those things that are happening that we see on our social media feed and we see on the news. But then we're going to jump right back into this topic of what does it mean 
for the Lord to be the owner of all of my resources and how do I live in response to him. So I want you to know I'm not living with my head in the sand. I try to stay off social media as much as I can so that it keeps my heart rate at a, at a good place and blood pressure, but our country is hurting. And if we don't gather as a church and pray about that and acknowledge that, that's not healthy either. So hope you can hear my heart on that up front. Um, Colossians chapter two. Up on the screen, if you've got access to it in front of you, feel free to look there. But Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 16, here's what it says. Therefore, actually I'm going to read from the screen. I have a different version in front of me. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come but the substance belongs to Christ. Hold on to that idea. Verse 18 goes on to say, Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. Then in verse 20, if you have died with Christ, so if you have experienced his work in your life, if you've died to all of those elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? Instead, in verse 23, realize these are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but they're of no value against fleshly indulgence. Let's pray together. Father, so much of what we're doing this morning through music and through these testimonies and through the scripture is about acknowledging your power, your lordship, your sovereign. You're in control, we're not. You're God, we're not. And Father, we know that's a simple, almost abstract phrase, but we need to be reminded of that. Father, we need to be reminded of your holiness, of your power, of your love, of your justice. God, in a time that our nation is hurting and divided, we know that the only true hope for reconciliation is found through the cross of Jesus Christ. And God, we look deep in our own hearts for the sources of pride and racism and division. Father, we pray that justice would be done because it's a reflection of your character. We pray that hope and peace and joy would win out because those are the fruits of the Spirit. God, we pray that you would shape us as a church. And you would shape us as a church so that we are people who speak about and put on display the good news of Jesus. That we would proclaim and display Jesus in every area. Our money, our time, the way we handle ourselves on social media and regards to situations that come into our communities. We want to lift up Christ. And Father, we pray that that would happen this morning. It would happen when we leave this place. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So a couple of reminders uh, from week chapter one, or from, from week one of this sermon series, from, from these verses, and, and specifically from verse 16, because it kind of really gets to the, uh, 
to the core of this idea. What, what Paul's dealing with in Colossians is these people have turned to Jesus. Jesus was preached as the Savior, as Lord, and they find life in him, and they turn to him, and then another group comes in and says, hey, that's good that you're a follower of Jesus. If you really want to find true power and fulfillment in life, you've got to do X, Y, and Z. And so they start to add all these things. If you really want to be a good Christian, if you really want to tap into true spiritual power, you have to do this, not do this, follow this tradition, have this religious experience. And so Paul is fighting back against this. And in your note, reminders from week one, no one can judge you based on past shadows. Christ has come, not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so we, we don't live under those past shadows as if we have to keep those and we lose our focus off Christ. No one can disqualify you based on their experiences. Your personal spiritual experience, you don't have other people who can sit around as your referee and referee based on your experience. It's totally based on Christ. The third reminder, no one can force you to live in fear under worldly power and rules. Perfect love cast out fear. In Christ, you are set free. You don't live under those fears. You don't live under those worldly powers. And so we're always trying to figure out, how do we live in that? Because sometimes people can take that reality and they can say, wow, I'm free in Christ. I can do anything I want to. I can live however I want to. No, we realize that's not at all what Scripture is teaching us. We're saying when we've been set free in Christ, we're set free to live fully for him. God, what does it look like when I give my life fully to you? And so we have to start figuring out, how do we make decisions about I'm free in Christ, and as a result of that, I need to live a holy life? How do you do this? Well, last week we laid out three words or, or three things that can kind of guide us in this. And I want to remind you of these. The first is there are certain prescriptions. There are certain passages in Scripture that just speak directly to an issue. This is what God is calling us to do. This is how we should act. And there, so there are passages that, that do that. We want to make sure we understand those appropriately, that we're not using them against someone else, that we have a, a, a core understanding of the meaning there. The second is patterns. Sometimes in Scripture, you'll see a general pattern from beginning to end as God is laying out his story of salvation. And you'll see, okay, based on this pattern of God's character, based on this pattern in Scripture, it's obvious that in my life I need to go this direction. And then finally, the last one is principles. Sometimes there's not a Bible verse that directly addresses your situation, or sometimes there's a Bible verse that can kind of give some insight on it, even though it's not exactly the same. And so we're trying to ask, what does Scripture teach us in general? What does it mean to live as God's people? And so as we're trying to make decisions about different parts of Scripture, these are some things that can provide guidance for you. And you can use this in so many different areas to shape and understand, how do I live the Christian life? Well, this morning we're going to apply this to money, and we're going to apply it specifically to the idea of tithing. But before we get there, especially if you are here and you are not a follower of Jesus, or if in some level of divine humor, the last time you were here was in March when I was preaching about money, and you've come back and this is the next time you were here, and you're thinking, oh my God, what am I doing? What have I got? The two times I come to this church, this is what we talk about. Uh, What's going on here? How do you understand, if you're not a Christian, how can we better explain what we're doing this morning? I want to lay out to you these couple of verses so that we can make sure we start from a healthy position. Ephesians chapter 2. 
God being rich in mercy, and Matt alluded to this in a good way about God's wealth, about God's riches, that he holds every good thing in his hand, but he is ultimately rich in mercy. That's what we need to recognize. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. And then verses 8 and 9 go on, and we're reminded that we don't earn our salvation. It's not something that we gain. The only thing we have gained is that the wages of sin is death. That's the only thing we've earned for ourselves. But because God is rich in mercy, 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus. Grace is that idea of a gift, a free gift, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. At the foundation, what we are talking about this morning is experiencing the riches of God in the midst of our poverty. That everything we need, everything we could ever ask for is supplied to us by the grace of God. We didn't buy ourselves into his family. We didn't earn our way into his kingdom. That he, in his mercy and grace, has made that possible. And so we have overflowing wealth at our disposal. His riches are there. And we realize that's way more than monetary. That God's riches, the word that stood out during these testimonies, I don't know if this was the case for you, the word that stood out to me was faithful. That God is faithful. That his faithfulness overflows into our lives because of his character, because of his love. And so at the foundation, there are these gospel realities. On your notes, I laid it out like this. Salvation is free. You don't buy it or earn it. Kids, make sure you hear this really clearly because at the end of the service, you're going to have a chance to do something with those dimes. When you put a dime in that offering plate, you have not earned God's love. You have not made yourself right with God when you have a chance to use that dime. God's love for you is free. He has made that possible that you can know his love. It's completely free. Second, and, and I'm going to show my cards here, and then you're going to have to be really patient with me to the end of the sermon, okay? Jesus paid your tithe. Anything that we owed to God Anything that we were obligated to God, and you think about the the law, the way the Old Testament law shaped God's people, Jesus fulfilled that. And this is kind of a big theological thing that we're going to have to make sense of, but Jesus paid your tithe. In Christ, you are free from the law. You don't live under guilt. You don't live under sin, and you don't live under shame. You've been set free from all of that. And third, we become rich in life and salvation because he became poor on our behalf. The only hope that I have to have anything in life that matters at all is because of who Jesus is and what he did in my life. So if you are here and you're not a follower of Jesus and you say, how do Christians approach money? How do I better understand what's going on here? Please understand that those are the foundations for what we're talking about. Nothing else we talk about this morning makes sense if we don't start from that foundation. Okay, what about tithing? What about this idea of giving? I don't know if you've seen this website called the Babylon Bee. Not sure that I necessarily recommend it, but the Babylon Bee is like a Christian form of satire. If you read The Onion, uh, it's kind of the Christian onion. It's this idea of satire, and they play on different ideas. Sometimes it's funny. Sometimes it's kind of convicting and challenging, but they do these silly made-up articles. 
It's all made up. If you read something on Babylon B, don't call your local pastor or your local religious leader. It, it's made up, but it's made up to make us think. So Babylon B uh, had an article recently about a sermon on tithing moves congregation to commit 10% of their attention to it. Uh, uh, this long time, remember this is made up. This r- church member doesn't actually exist. People are just writing this, but this lady says, I usually try to focus and really observe about 12 to 13% of the sermon, so I'm doing way more than my part. Once in a while, I'll listen to the entire thing as a special one-time love offering of my, of my time and attention. Uh, I hope that's not your approach to, uh, to sermon listening, though if you listen to 10%, you know, that's really, that's really good. I'll, I'll take that. Um, there was also an article recently about the quarterback for the Oakland Raiders, uh, Derek Carr. I don't know if you saw this article, but Derek Carr just signed a five-year, $125 million extension, I think making him the highest-paid player right now uh, in, in the NFL. He's done better than his older brother did in the, in the NFL. But uh, he, he signed this extension, and he said, the first thing I'll do is I'll pay my tithe like I have since I was in college, getting $700 on a scholarship check. That won't change. Oh, you know his pastor uh, <laughs> is excited about that. Man, I don't know where Derek Carr goes to church, but $125 million, if you move the decimal, that's still a pretty good number uh, at that point. Derek Carr talks about how when he was at Fresno State as a quarterback, God used FCA to, uh, to bring his heart back to the Lord, and he recommitted his heart to the Lord, and that's when he began tithing that scholarship check that he was receiving there at Fresno State, and obviously he's gone on and, and continued to do that. And so this idea of tithing is out there, this idea of giving. What does, that, what does that look like? How do we make sense of it? Kids, if you don't understand the word tithe, okay? If you don't understand the word tithe, it's based on the idea of 10%, one part of having 10 of something. In that Ziploc bag, if you haven't managed to lose it yet, and you haven't thrown those things all over the place, there should be 10 dimes in that Ziploc bag that adds up to a dollar. If you didn't get one of those bags, let me know after the service and I'll get you one, but there's 10 dimes that add up to a dollar. Giving a tithe, when you hear that word this morning, one of those dimes would represent a tithe. It would represent 10% 10% of, of that amount. And so when you hear me talk about tithing this morning, know that that's kind of the, I wanted you guys to have those in your hands so you would know what this word was about. At the end of the service, when the offering plate comes around, if you put one of those dimes in there, you can recognize that's what a tithe looks like. You have an, a picture of that. Um, now remember kids, listen to me real quick on this. You didn't earn that bag of dimes. You didn't do anything to get it. It's a gift. Every one of those comes as a gift that you didn't earn, but you recognize, hey, I didn't earn this, but I can give some of it back, recognizing that it was given to me as a gift. So when you hear the word tithe this morning, know that 10%, one of those dimes out of 10 is is what we're talking about. Now here's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through prescriptions, pattern principles. We're going to use that, that layout, that model, and we're going to walk through it in reference to tithing. On your notes, on your notes, I've laid out all of the Old Testament places that you can find the word tithe. So if you want to go back and look at all of these, I've laid out in the Old Testament where you can find this word reference. The only one I've not laid out 
is Genesis 14, 20. It's not on your notes because it doesn't actually use the word tithe there, but it's the same concept. So if you want to write in Genesis 14, that's another Old Testament passage. Where do you find this reference? In Genesis 14, 20, it says that Abram gave Melchizedek. Melchizedek uh, was the king of Salem. Uh, he, was a, he was a priest, and it says that Abraham gave a tenth of everything that he gained. Now, he actually gained the wealth there in reference to battling a group of kings who had come and hurt his nephew Lot. And so you had this situation going on where family, he goes out to fight this battle, and it says that he gives a, a tenth of that. That passage is used again in Hebrews. Uh, you'll find it showing up again there. We'll reference that in just a second. The reason Genesis 14 is important for this topic is because it shows up before the law is given. And so you have a pattern that's being established before the laws are given by Moses to the people of Israel. And that, that does become pretty significant here in, a, here in a few minutes, but you see that happening. Numbers 18.21 is a good example of the passages in your Old Testament in those first five books that talk about this idea of tithing. It says to the Levites, the Levites were the religious leaders that worked in the temple. They didn't have jobs where they were going out and working the fields and earning money. Uh, they were, you can draw a very, very careful connection back to modern, to, to modern day clergy and, and pastors. We have to be careful theologically, but you can make that connection. To the Levites, I've given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service that they do. So the people would give a tithe of what they earned or what they grew. They would give it back, and so that became uh, income, so to speak, for, for the Levites. And then you have Malachi 3, uh, which was referenced earlier. Gary referenced that earlier from the stage. Will man rob God, yet you are robbing me? But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Malachi is one of the prophets toward the end of the Old Testament that is calling the people back to faithfulness to God and faithfulness to God's ways. And so the interesting thing is you have the tithes showing up before the law is given. It's at the core of the law. And then you also have it showing up with the prophets as they're pointing back to the law. So it extends pretty well throughout the Old Testament. But make sure you understand that the tithe, as you read about it in the Old Testament, is way more complex than, hey, just move the uh, decimal point when you bring in your crops. Uh, there were multiple tithes that were referenced in, in the Old Testament. You find three that are referenced really clearly. There's kind of the primary tithe. You raise your crops, you make the money, you give a tenth of it back. You also had a tithe that was given every three years um, to care for people. Indeed, you have another tithe that was given for special celebrations. A lot of people think if you add all, all those up, you get up to 23% uh, was actually involved in giving the tithes. The tithes are often used in reference with other contributions that were given. And so here's what I want to say really clearly. We have to be careful when we say, well, hey, the tithing's in the Bible, Christians should tithe, that we don't oversimplify what's being laid out there in the Old Testament. It, there's a complex system that's, that's being involved. Um, Amos chapter 4, Amos says you should bring your tithe every three days. 
<laughs> so, uh, you know, if you think about, well, hey, the Bible says I should tithe, I need to do exactly what it says. Well, Amos 4 says bring it every three days. Uh, that'll put you through the test. Uh, how do you, what does it look like to do that? Amos is another of those prophets calling the people back to the Lord. But you see in the Old Testament this idea of tithing. What about the New Testament? Where does it show up in the New Testament? It only shows up four times in the New Testament. Twice are the same words they show up in Matthew and Luke. You get another reference in Luke, and then you get a reference in the book of Hebrews for that Abraham-Melchizedek situation. And Hebrews uses tithing for the purpose of exalting Christ. He uses this very intricate argument, but ultimately what he is doing, he's using the tithe to, to exalt Christ. Matthew 23, Jesus references the tithe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters to the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Now that last phrase causes lots of debates online, and I'll send you some different articles so you can, you can read about it on your own. The core of it, though, is Jesus doesn't come across super positive in this situation. He's very frustrated with the Pharisees that there's a way that you tie that is completely contrary to the heart of God, and so he's dealing with that. Luke 18, you have a Pharisee standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Ooh, man, just that, Luke 18, it's this pride that bubbles over. Look at me, I fast, I tithe, I'm a great religious people. And the Pharisees among us realize what it looks like to guard your heart in those moments. Hey, look what a great religious person I am. And Jesus says, you've completely misunderstood what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God, if that's your approach. And then the New Testament goes completely silent about tithing. You know what the New Testament says a lot about? The widow who gave her last two little pieces of money. Uh, the rich young ruler who Jesus said, Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Zacchaeus, who turns around and says, I'll give fourfold uh, from what I took. The early church that sells everything and gives to those in need, lays everything there at the apostles' feet. We're going to find out here in a few minutes. 2 Corinthians 9 talks about giving freely, giving in proportion to what you have. And so you have this situation. And I want you to feel the tension here for just a minute, Okay. I know this is sort of a, a heady topic, but I want you to feel the tension. You have the Old Testament that's building up all this information about tithing. And then you have the New Testament that just goes almost completely silent on the subject. And when it does show up, it shows up in a pretty negative light, so to speak. And then we think about our own experiences, my experience growing up in church where tithing is laid out there. And, and you, this pattern in Scripture that seems to point away from the tithe, so to speak, and yet I was taught to tithe from a young age. I remember watching my parents write their tithe check and them explaining to us what we were doing. And the direction of Scripture just doesn't point that way. It points away from the tithe being a mandate for God's people. It points away from that. And you say, ha, I knew those people on stage weren't right. I knew my parents and grandparents weren't right. Oh, to quote Lee Corso, not so fast, my friend. Uh, aren't you ready for game day to come back? <laughs> not so fast, my friend. You've got these prescriptions, these passages that are laid out. You've got this pattern that moves 
a little bit away from this idea of tithe. But then you have these principles that I don't want you to miss that come back around here. Make sure you see these principles that are laid out in Scripture. The first on your notes is that there's a principle in Scripture of planned, purposeful giving. I'll acknowledge, and I think this is an important point, I will acknowledge that in the New Testament, as a part of the church, that we are not judged according to the tithe. We, our judgment is based fully on Christ. I think you can even say that we don't live under the mandate of the tithe. But here's where you have to be so careful, and this is my generation speaking right here. Ha, I don't have to tithe. I don't have to do this. Do you know what happens when you don't give planned, purposeful, proportionate gifts, when you just float? You constantly find ways not to give. <laughs> the principle in Scripture is first fruits. The principle in Scripture is that this is not accidental. The principle in Scripture is that I've been given stewardship of this, and when I return money to God, that's not really a gift. That's just returning to him, acknowledging what he's given to me. And so has, in the history of the church, tithing probably been pushed as a mandate on people? Sure, yeah, it has. But man, it is detriment to my generation that we would turn around and say, okay, that's good. I don't have to give. I don't have to give anything up front. Because I know my heart, if I don't do that, if I don't give up front, I'm sure not giving on the backside. <laughs> that if I'm not systematically, purposefully planning out where that money is going to go, we know how this works. Either you control where your money goes or other people controls where your money goes. It's just like your schedule. You control your schedule or somebody else controls your schedule. And so what's this idea of tithing? What it does is it forces us, and, and I, forces isn't the right word, it compels us to have a plan. Just like what Matt was talking about. It's a, it's a frozen cell in your spreadsheet to say, you know what, if, it, if, if left to myself, if I don't tithe, if I don't give proportionally up front, that's going to get away from me. It's going to become the last thing that I think about. And so to my generation, I would just say, be careful about floating with your money. Be careful about trusting yourself and sounding super spiritual. I just let the Spirit guide me in my giving. Well, the Spirit can guide you to give proportionally in a planned way up front so that you demonstrate your trust in God and that you do have control over what God has given you stewardship of. Being controlled and led by God's Spirit doesn't mean randomly making up things as you go along. That's not the pattern you see in Scripture. That's not the principle you see in Scripture. And so I want you to realize that Jesus has paid our tithe, that we don't live under that. But the tithe provides a pattern and a principle that reflects God's heart, and it is to our detriment if we just push that aside and say, hey, I'll live however I want. Nah, that's, a, that's a dangerous place to go. The second principle you find in Scripture is this idea of complete stewardship. That when I return to God, a portion, my response is not, God got his part, now I'll do whatever I want with my part. These testimonies spoke against that immediately. I've seen just horrible theology show up on social media and Facebook sometimes about this, like, well, God only asked for 10%, and I get, oh my gosh, no, that's not true. God owns everything that you have. Everything you have is a gift from him, and so you steward all of it. You could tithe every month of your life and not be right with God. 
you could say, I'm going to do this, do this, and he would look and say, I never knew you. You never gave your heart fully to me. Everything we have. Listen to this quote about this idea of, of giving and tithing in the New Testament. The task of the Great Commission, the Great Commission, if you're not familiar with the New Testament, is to go and make the gospel known to all nations, all people. So that's the task that Jesus has given his church. The task of the Great Commission is so immense and requires such an investment of commitment and money that the thought of settling the issue of what we give by a fixed percentage, such as the tithe, is simply out of the question. The financial issue for the American church is not tithing, but it's the extravagance of our lifestyle. That the thing that is stopping us from fulfilling the great commission that God has called us to is usually not moving the decimal, it's the condition of our heart. And man, that begins with me. Like, have I completely given to the Lord? Kids, um, I know I've said a lot of words since I talked to you last, and it's, it's hard to stay up. But in that bag, every one of those dimes belongs to God. Try your best, try your best to get rid of the word mine, M-I-N-E. Get rid of the word mine when you talk, talk about the things you have. I know the word mine causes lots of fights with your siblings. I understand how, how that works. But the more we can get rid of the word mine, and the more we realize this is God's, and so when I give one of these dimes at the end of the service, I haven't really lost anything. I think one of the people said that on stage earlier. I haven't lost anything. I've just returned to God realizing this was his to begin with. And adults, we realize we have to get rid of the word mine. Man, that, that, that's hard because we, we have this tendency and think, well, God will get his, I'll take mine. Doesn't work like that. Okay, moving a little faster. Third, number three. Sacrificial generosity. When you have a plan with your finances, it sets you free to be able to be generous. When you're constantly living under debt and obligation, it's hard to be generous. And so when we have control of our finances, it sets you free to be able to give more. And then you're able to invest, make kingdom investments. This is number four. Make kingdom investments through and with the church. As I was studying this week and praying, there was one phrase that came to mind that I want to share with you particularly. It's this phrase. When we give, we give as the church, not to the church. Okay, so let me explain that so we can be on the same page, and then we're going to read those final verses from 2 Corinthians and wrap up. When you give in the offering plate, whether it's a tithe 10% or it's another type of planned systematic giving, when you give, you're not giving to the church, you're giving as the church. And I think if we'll think about this, it just changes everything. When you give to the church, you are separating yourself and you feel like you're giving to this institution over here. That admittedly causes this breach where you feel like, oh, I'm just giving into this. No, no, when we give, we give as the church, that we are dependent on God for everything, and we're interdependent on one another. So when I choose to give, I'm just giving as part of the church. I'm not giving to something separate from myself. <laughs> I'm giving saying, God, use me however you can, and I want to make an investment in your kingdom. The clearest place to see this in Scripture is 2 Corinthians 9. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 9. I want to say a couple of things about those verses and then we are going to sing one song together and, and wrap up. 2 Corinthians is back to the left of Colossians. If you don't have it marked like I didn't, uh, you're, you're getting back just to the beginning of Paul's letters. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, 
And I want to start in verse 6. I want you to hear the weight of these verses from Paul about financial stewardship and and how God shapes our lives as, as givers. I think this is probably the core New Testament passage about this topic. Starting in verse 6, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, but whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Those are verses you probably heard as a child, but just, just soak that in based on what we talked about, that we give freely and cheerfully because we realize that's the type of giver that God is. Then you go on to verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. If you didn't notice there, the word all is really important. It's all his. It's all related to him. As it is written, he is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched, in verse 11, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Notice the pattern. God enriches you so that you can care for others so that then thanksgiving goes to God. Man, that is a powerful picture right there of how it works in God's kingdom. Verse 13, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift his grace that pours over to us through Christ. I skipped over this phrase earlier because I wanted to end with it. But I think if there is a pattern that you see in Scripture, it's that phrase we've used before, everything we have is from God, everything we have is for God. That everything that I have came from God, and when I use what I've been given, I'm going to use it for God. Proportionally, first fruit up front, everything after that equally for God. Here's how we're going to wrap up our service this morning. We're going to have to multitask, but I know you can do this. After I pray, we're going to stand and sing a final psalm together. When this psalm is finished, our service will be dismissed, but during this psalm, we're also going to pass the offering plate. So if you're normally one of the people that passes the offering plate, when you stand up, you'll start to pass that. Kids, if you'd like to put one of those dimes in there to understand what that giving of a tithe feels like, when we're singing, you'll be able to put that dime and the plate as it goes by. Before we get to that, and I know I've already caused distractions, but before we get to that, let's pray together, and then we're going to give ourselves fully to the Lord here at the, at the end of the service. Let's bow our heads and pray. God, this opportunity to gather this morning has been a huge encouragement to my heart, hearing these folks share earlier on stage, being able to sing together, being able to see friends, uh, just seeing how you're at work in people's lives through conversations and, and, and hearing stories of, of how you're changing hearts and working in families. God, thank you for the gift of gathering together. Thank you for the gift of salvation we have through Christ. Father, I pray if there's anyone here who is feeling the weight of religious obligation, who wants so badly to be made right with you but just doesn't feel they're good enough, God, would they know the free gift of salvation through Christ? 
that they are able to be made right with you. Not earning that, not buying that, but receiving it, God. God, as a church, as we wrap up our service by singing together and giving as the church, Father, may you continue to work in and through us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.